Hello and welcome to the British Sitcom History Podcast. You are listening to part two of our look at the peak years of Red Dwarf. Part one was last week. Have you listened to it yet? If the answer is no, go back and do that one first. Although actually we haven't even started talking about our selected episode, which is The Inquisitor, Series 5, Episode 2. If you're unfamiliar with our show, then we have already looked at Red Dwarf once before. We looked at the early years, now we're at the peak years. And we've already talked about all the major changes that were made into Series 3 and the other changes that have come along as we've gone into Series 4 and 5 and eventually 6. Ah, lots to talk about because Red Dwarf is such a great big thing. Let's get back to it. Well, okay, so much later than we usually do, why don't we start talking about our selected episode, which is Series 5, Episode 2, The Inquisitor. Yes. So, immediately we get a fairly rare thing, a cold open. Yeah, it's a, a, a cold open. I was going to say it's a pre-credits sequence, but it's after the credits. So what is yeah. it? It's a cold open. You know what you're talking about. It's a cold open. That's exactly what it is. And it's like um, we get a nice bit of model work, which is mm-hmm. sort of exterior of what looks like some sort of station on a planet. Never explained. That doesn't really matter. Although totally I do want thing. to know. I don't, I don't think they've ever uh, used that before. So. I do yeah. want to know when, where this is. Because basically what this is, this is the setup for the Inquisitor. So we're inside. There's a guy in bed, a guy we've never seen before, some random guy called Thomas Ullman. And the Inquisitor arrives and he erases him from history because he's not lived a worthy life and replaces him with someone else. And that's, that's like the setup for the episode. It's it's a nice little setup to tell us who the Inquisitor is and what he does, but mm-hmm. but I, I have got questions like what what who is this guy when when did this happen where where is this? <laughs> well, the that's last the whole man. point. The Inquisitor travels through time and space and to to judge everyone. Oh, so is that be, the whole point? It could be anywhere. Oh, I see. <laughs> it is unusual to have a cold open like this where we're setting up the antagonist basically outside of relation to the Dwarfers. Um, so that is fairly unusual. A little bit expositionary, although it's not really because we get all the exposition later. This this is sort of yeah, setting we do. it up. So, we do. Yeah. If we didn't have that, would it make sense? Yeah, well, you know, it's good. It, g- it gives you drama. It, it gives us jeopardy. It gives us stakes. Shall we talk about the Inquisitor himself? Uh, mm-hmm. Well, actually, <laughs> the Inquisitor. I want to talk about Jack Doherty, who 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 plays yes. him. This is right in my time. I know Jack Doherty. I knew Jack Doherty really well. He was a sketch comedian Mm -hmm. and he was in a a sketch show called Absolutely, which was one of my very favorite things in the world. I looked it up, 1989 to 1993. So that was, I am 14 to 16 years old there. That is (laughs) is exactly when you want to see silly sketch comedy. So I absolutely had Jack Doherty, but also had more Wenner Banks and John Sparks. Gordon Kennedy, who we have also seen mm-hmm. in Red Dwarf. Well, let me pick you up there. Moana Banks appeared in Red Dwarf. Moana Banks is also in Red Dwarf. She was yes, the lift is. operator woman I, computer type. I did know that. Yes, yes. And uh, Murray Hunter and Pete Becky. I, I would, I would say to anybody who hasn't seen Absolutely, it's worth revisiting. I, I sort of went back and had a look with a bit, a bit of trepidation because I thought, well, you know, maybe I'm remembering this with rose tinted spectacles. Mm-hmm. And you know, it, it is a bit dated, but it's still funny. It still made me laugh, and that might, some of that might have been nostalgia, but I enjoyed it. Well, obviously, the guys who wrote sketches for Absolutely also wrote sketches for Spitting Image, mm-hmm. and that is how they knew Grant and Naylor, who were the, basically head writers on Spitting yeah. Image by the, by the time they finished. Uh, so that's their 
connection. That's why they've gone, hey, come and do a part in this. Hey, come and do this. Jack, you're six foot four or something. <laughs> we want a big dominant, dominating uh, person for this this thing. Yeah. So they've done a lot of that. And I'm going to talk about this a little bit later. We talk, I want to talk about Rob Grant a bit more and what else he did. But Jack Doherty mm. appeared mm. in The Strangerers. The yeah. Strangerers yeah. That, that was one of his shows. So I'll come back to that. But yeah, the, this connection's there. They obviously all just know each other and work together. The other thing I know of Jack Doherty, I remember about him, was that he was... When Channel 5 launched, mm-hmm. he was the host of their late-night American-style talk show. Yeah. He was, he was, they were trying to launch a sort of David Letterman. The problem being, of course, only 17 people could watch Channel 5 at the first, so <laughs> it didn't really take off. But but I, it was it was certainly a cultural thing. It was an, a British attempt at one of those late-night talk shows. Yeah, and it was Monday to Friday, I think, wasn't it? It was mm. like five nights a week, which was yes. not the done thing in Britain at that time. And still isn't, really. So, yeah, Jack Doherty was, he was at the time one of those faces that you would recognise. But of course, we don't see his face. <laughs> it's the Inquisitor, he is just a voice. And it is him, you know, it's not like a stunt mm. double, they did voiceover later. And, you know, the voice he's doing is a bit uh, post-production to make it a bit more gravelly and what have you. But the interesting thing is, the, the very end, if I just jump to the end of the episode where they, Lister and the Inquisitor have a kind of a bit of a, yeah. uh, a face-to-face, the Inquisitor pulls up his mask and indeed it is Jack Doherty's face underneath Mm. there and they reshot it because they thought this looks crap (laughs) you know the inquisitor lifts off his mask and it's like a pasty (laughs) face behind it it's like when darth vader takes his helmet off it just completely destroys (laughs) the magic and so they they reshot it with uh, with the mask on so yeah there were were supposed to see his face but yeah it just looked like a sort of pasty scottish bloke in a stupid helmet so it didn't quite work but yeah, I think it gives a great effect. And and the costume there, the mask for the Inquisitor was made especially. And it looks really cool, I think. It looks all right. <laughs> it's not, I don't go that cool. far. What more do you want? <laughs> well, nothing, but I had, I hadn't even really no I couldn't even describe it to be honest. It's just a monster mask, isn't it? Yeah, but it's well, it's nicely done. And the rest of the costume was just thrown together by whatever they could find, just like dark, spooky things, you know. So we just concentrate on the face. So we cut from this cold open to mm-hmm. Starbug, and yep. we got our protagonists on Starbug. Lister is reading a comic book version of the Aeneid, Virgil's mm-hmm. Aeneid. Yeah, I have notes. Okay. <laughs> It's not the Aeneid. It's the Odyssey. They go on to describe the Odyssey, Homer's Odyssey, yeah. not, not the Aeneid. I'm not familiar enough with the the classics. Well, listen, I, I, I'm, I'm nervous about saying this. And if, I'm, if, if it turns out that it's the same story and one was Roman and one was Greek, I could be, you know, I might be wrong about this. <laughs> but basically, it's the Odyssey. So Crichton's described it, Crichton describes it as the epic tale of Agamemnon's pursuit of Helen of Troy. That's the Odyssey. And the reason why I'm jagging on this... This is the Odyssey. Red Dwarf is the Odyssey. <laughs> How have we not mentioned this before? <laughs> like, this is it. And they got it wrong. <laughs> <laughs> the Odyssey is Odysseus returning from the wars, trying to find his way home. The whole story mm. is him overcoming monsters and oceans and trying to get back to his wife. Mm. He wants to be shipwrecked and comatose. <laughs> I found this scene interesting because we don't draw any great metaphor from it. It is just a bit of banter between them. Um, it's just a little one-scene thing. It kind of doesn't translate to the rest of the episode. It's just a bit of fun. And I think they're very well written. It all works really nicely. But that does speak to me that the episode wasn't running long enough. <laughs> we need to yeah. we need to add something. We could drop this into any episode. It wouldn't make any difference, you know? As we are having our banter, suddenly Lister is taken control of. He is possessed mm-hmm. by the, the, the spirit of the Inquisitor. This is a crap CGI. <laughs> well, the little electric bolt. There's like a little electric spark that's going from off screen <laughs> to him. 
and he's, he pulls a face like he's just had root canal. Talking about the CGI kind of bits here, particularly in the Inquisitor, whenever he kind of puts a, a bubble around anyone, you know, he shoots them yeah. and there's this kind of whole bubble. This is all CGI, right? And this is, mm. you know, you're saying it's crap CGI. This is 1992. This is cutting edge CGI is what it is. And is it? from what I understand, the company that was doing it kind of really took this on as a challenge and, and, and oh, look, you've got these great ideas we want to play with. And so it was all kind of done, uh, you know, in a very mutual way, uh, as opposed to this is what we need doing, who's the cheapest bidder, you know? It was like, uh, it was a way for this cutting edge technology to have a way of showing off what they can do. You know what, these the, the, the sort of status bubble whatever you want to call it i, I would yeah. agree with that, actually it's a good effect it's cool, you know, that, right? that sort of holds up quite well and you're right it's 30 years ago and when they get evaporated and stuff and sort of turn into yeah, a skeleton yeah. that sort of like you couldn't have you can't do that you know a few years before yeah no i, I accept that it wasn't a general criticism of, of the cgi it was very specific that that little lightning bolt yeah it's very poor <laughs> well i mean it just how yeah you know, how do you express that someone is taking over the the, the body but yeah they, it, it happens to them all kind of well most of them throughout the show <laughs> the inquisitor speaks through them so what what's happening is our crew are on starbug and starbug is being mm, tractor beamed back to red dwarf whatever you want mm. to call it it is under the control of the inquisitor and so whilst they are on their way back to be judged Inquisited. Inquisited. What's the, what's, the, what's the verb here? To inquire. Whilst they're... That can't be right. Whilst they're on their way back to be judged, uh, there's, a, there's a discussion. There is now this verbal exposition from Crichton of what is yeah. the Inquisitor. There's a nice gag. Uh, and you were talking earlier about editing uh, for, for the punchlines. There's a great gag here where Crichton says, That is the Inquisitor. He prunes away the wastrels, expunges the wretched, and deletes the worthless. And Rimmer replies, we're in big trouble. <laughs> and the timing of that, that punchline is instant. That is the Inquisitor. He prunes away the wastrels, expunges the wretched, and deletes the worthless. We're in big trouble. <laughs> and you could make an argument for, actually, a little pause would have been, basically mm. the way I just did it there, you know, a little pause, a, a thought, and we're in big trouble. But it works. It, it you know, yeah. far be it from me to tell that, tell these professional comedy writers about comic timing. It works. It worked perfectly. Just this instant comeback. But I, I, I wonder if that was the way it was scripted and the way it was performed, or if, mm. if that's the way it was edited. Yeah, and that's the beauty of it. You know, you do it one way, and you can edit it, tighten it up a bit later on, and it might work. Mm. I really like this whole bit though. The Crichton giving a getting a bit of chance to play around and do all this exposition, but doing it yeah. in a very dramatic way. It works nicely. Mm. And I really like the concept. You know, these classic urban legends, you know, like your kids around a campfire telling ghost stories kind of vibe. Yeah. It's that feel, but with a sci-fi element. You know, this rogue simulant yeah. who's traveling through time, judging people and erasing people from time. It's got that vibe. Yeah, but the problem here is that, is that that's the way Crichton's telling the story. Like, they're around a campfire, mm. and, you know, he's, you know, he's got a candle under his chin, and he's telling this scary story. But they're actually being dragged towards it by it right now. Mm. <laughs> they should be a lot more scary than uh, just a sort of <laughs> tall tale around the campfire. It's a comedy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay, okay. Incidentally, just a, a tangent. Lister in this scene has got a blanket around him. Does that blanket say Titan Hilton on it? <laughs> He's nicked it from a hotel at Titan. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. That's a great. That's a great little bit of production design. <laughs> that's probably from series one. That I bet they've had. I bet they've had that all the way. I really like that. A really nice detail. So we get to a point where they are to be judged. Can we talk about the judgment chamber? 
Yes, yes, please. I was I was really curious about this set. It looked like a sort of standard spaceship red dwarf floor, like a sort of um, like metal grating corrugated iron type thing. But the Inquisitor is sat in this green, th- this weird green wing-backed throne. Looked like a sort of Etsy version of the Game of Thrones throne. <laughs> yeah. And there are these weird gothic candles everywhere. Like, what's the vibe? What is this guy's aesthetic? He's got all of time and space to choose from. Why has he gone for this sort of pound shop Dracula's castle? Well, probably because they only had a couple of quid to spend. <laughs> so for a start, that throne is far too elaborate. Um, I They've nicked that from somewhere. That is, They found that on Shepparton's studio somewhere. Definitely. Yes. They, didn't, they didn't make that. It's yeah. They'll just like turn the lights off and a bit of candelabra for just to pick out a bit of detail. And you see this every now and then. And again, you've got to remember that the, what they're doing here in Red Dwarf on the budget is remarkable. And yeah. so you get yeah. occasionally get these bits that don't quite kind of like live up to the the aesthetic. There's another one in Justice where you know they go into Justice World and Rimmer goes on trial for killing everyone on Red Dwarf. And yeah. the judgment chamber there is again <laughs> like. There's a sort of zebra print pattern that gives a sense of perspective and then like Mm -hmm. just smoky lights just to kind of block out the fact that there's a studio wall 20 feet behind you. So there's nothing to it really. You know, that you just have to make, make the best of that sometimes. I think in terms of sets and locations and stuff like that, when they really come into their own polymorph too, when they go to the Guelph village. Yeah. All these huts and stuff. That's because that was something that was being filmed on Shepparton and they went and had a look and like, oh, what can we use this for? <laughs> this like mud hut <laughs> village. Right. We can use that for something. And then they d- did a night shoot there. So in-, in Gunmen of the Apocalypse, which is another fan favourite as well, and won an international Emmy, by the way, that episode. Oh. They had this idea of doing a Western and they said, look, we're not going to write it unless we can film it. So can you find us somewhere to do it? And then we'll write it. And they found this, it's called Laredo, this little Western street mm-hmm. in Kent that some kind of mad guy in the 70s was like, I'm going to build a Western town. <laughs> and then it's been like, it's got a it's got a group of enthusiasts and they build their own kind of houses and like a sheriff's office and stuff like that there. And it still goes today. And it seems like it's primarily, you know, apart from the kind of select few actually kind of use it and live there to a large extent, not quite live there, but you know, they, it's a whole hobby mm. thing. It seems like its main sort of funding comes from um, filming locations because it's oh, this yeah. really well done Western town in, in Britain yeah. that you can film on. Do you know, I, I must confess, I hadn't even thought about where that was filmed until now. I, yeah. I think I just assumed it was behind a studio somewhere, but that it, we're not in Hollywood, are we? That, yeah, that's TV where budget, they film Westerns in that. Hollywood. Yeah. And that's why, like, so for another example, you'll see in one episode where Lister is in a virtual reality game and he's like a, he's like a 1930s noir detective. Mm, yes. And it's like a wall and a car. Like, that's all you can see. Yeah. That's yeah. what they built on a set. <laughs> like that's, yeah, yeah. that's so, you know, that's, that's the difference. Given having this Western street just means they can open it up and just gives them loads of room to play with. But let's go back to the judgment chamber, which is a dark room with a couple of candles in it. So for the umpteenth time, we confront the fact that Rimmer is an awful person. And it's, it's, it's interesting. You, you mentioned the episode, uh, Justice from series four. I think there's a lot of similarity actually between these two episodes. Not, 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 it's not a complete copy, but a couple of times when I was um, remembering back and making notes on this before I watched it again, I, I was remembering the wrong episode. But let's be specific here. The first to be judged is Rimmer. Mm-hmm. Of course, the, the the trick here is that the Inquisitor lifts his helmet up and he is Rimmer, so they are judging themselves, so there's no place to hide. And again, we, we sort of confront this fact that Rimmer is awful, which we've, we've seen before in Justice. We see in Rimmer World where every time Rimmer is confronted by an, an alternate version of himself, it's it's awful. <laughs> 
But that's Rimmer, self-loathing. That's his, yeah. that's yeah, yeah. his basic uh, tenant. And that's what we get here. He, he kind of just sort of tries to justify himself and then goes, well, well, what do you expect? You know, I, I hate myself. I, I've got no talent. <laughs> Everyone around me has always hated me. What do you want me to do? You are a slimy, despicable, rat-hearted, green discharge of a man, aren't you? <laughs> That's a very red dwarf type of line. Isn't it? Mm, I like it. So we don't get at this point. We don't get any uh, outcome, any judgment. We we flash, and suddenly the cat appears in the Inquisition chamber. And this is the most relatable part of the whole episode for me. <laughs> Justify your existence. What contribution have you made? I've given pleasure to the world because I have such a beautiful ass. <laughs> well, that's true. Can I go now? That's your case. You need more? Some might say that's a pretty shallow argument. Some might say I'm a pretty shallow guy, but a shallow guy with a great ass. Yeah, great stuff. Cat completely oblivious as usual. <laughs> doesn't realise the danger he's in. Doesn't even attempt to justify himself. Well, he does, but on his own on his own level. Is he completely oblivious, or is he just like, yeah, I know what's going on, but yeah, I don't care. Maybe, maybe. Look, look. Well, I have. This is justifying myself. What, what, what yeah. do you want? <laughs> yeah, on his terms, that is that is justification. Uh, we have a nice little philosophical bit from Crichton. So yeah, Crichton comes in next. And this is the bit that really interests me. He says, "I'm programmed to live unselfishly, and therefore any good works I do come not out of fine motives, but as a result of a series of binary commands I am compelled to obey." To me, this is the meat of the episode. This is about yeah. predestination, predeterminism, free will. And we, we see it with Crichton. It's, it's obvious. He's programmed. He can only be a certain way. Can mm. he break his programming or not? That's perhaps a bigger question. Isn't that the same for Rimmer? Isn't that the same for all of us? It never quite goes really deep into it, but that's what this episode is exploring, right? That's yeah. our sense of determination, our free will. That's, I think that really chimes with Lister, you know, all the things he could have done and never mm. did. But do we blame his upbringing for that? Was he in a situation where he was not expected to do anything? Whereas Rimmer was expected to do anything and did not have the ability to do it? That's the difference between the two of them. But I find this really interesting, this idea of predeterminism. Like, I'm no philosopher, as you will learn in the next few seconds. But, you know, this idea that the predictability of physical systems. You know, if you hit a snooker ball at a certain angle, you know it's going to go in the hole. And you can apply that same logic to, to molecules. But we can't, we don't have the knowledge or the processing power to be able to predict those things. Hmm. But in theory, we could. And if we are to believe that the Big Bang was this moment which spewed all matter out into the universe, this fixed moment in time... Everything that we do is, is, is just an expression of that matter. We are that matter. And therefore, every action we take is predetermined in that moment. Or can I just scratch my head whenever I want? I, d I don't yeah. know. <laughs> like, this is, this, I, I am very half arsed in this philosophy. I feel like I'm, yeah. I feel like it's sort of 1992 and I'm at a party. And frankly, <laughs> someone should be having sex with me soon. <laughs> <laughs> You've been watching Open University again, haven't you? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, to bring it on a human level, yeah, we the choices we make, the, the, the self-will that we commit, is that actual choices we make, or is it just a series of chemicals and electrical impulses in our mm. brain that we have no real control over it? The illusion of choice. Yeah. So the idea of, okay, you have not made the right choices, you have not lived a worthwhile life you are going to be replaced. It's I think it's a it's a very interesting concept. And then the sort of payoff of that, when we when we got to find out who is going to be erased and the reasons mm. for that, just jumping forward slightly, we, we Lister also gets judged and basically yeah, got, tells him to yeah, so Lister, Lister's interaction with the Inquisitor is pretty brief. He tells him to spin on it. And then we come back for the verdict. And basically Lister and Crichton are, are deleted and the cat and Rimmer are not. 
And the the idea being, by their own low standards, they have acquitted themselves. But you and the mechanoid, you could have been so much more. It's like being at school again, isn't it? You've not fulfilled your potential, guys. <laughs> that's that's what it like. That's what it was like at school for us, Gareth. Yeah. <laughs> and that's why we would have been judged. Oh yeah, give a gold <laughs> star to the idiot in the corner because he's written his name. Ugh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We are, but that's the beauty of, the, you know, judging themselves. And now I'm presenting a podcast about a science fi- science fiction show that's 30 years old. So how do you like that, Mrs. Illingworth? <laughs> we do get them being erased, and then there is a sudden twist where Crichton, in some sort of time shenanigans, pops up and saves them. Uh, and so then we're in this limbo. We are between worlds. Let's just, let's just talk about this episode now, then, because when we, we were talking about which episode to do, I, I wanted to do this one because I like this idea of, of free will that we've just talked about. Mm. And you sort of said, well, yeah, there's all that, but then it just becomes a silly chase, chase film, which it does, yeah. and we'll talk about that in a minute. <laughs> and I think that is a bit of a problem with Red Dwarf. They, they try to deal with these big concepts, but ultimately it's like a half-hour show, and it's really difficult to, to get that in. Mm. You mentioned Rimmerworld earlier, and that's a, that's a really fantastic some great concepts there there's huge jeopardy for the characters and the last 30 seconds they just teleport away and everything's fine <laughs> and it's like the, 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 that felt like a it just felt like a cop-out sort of you know deus ex machina and that happens quite a bit in red dwarf and this is not quite such an extreme example but you know we go from this exploration of the nature of free will to a, a shoot 'em up i mean it's sitcom world right you've got to get back to the status quo and uh, there's like so the things like the matter paddle when they go to wax world in in meltdown yeah and then that matter paddle is kind of like they know they don't use that to go to a different planet no. and do something else they they use it once they've got to add a bit of an adventure out of it and then it's like okay forget that this thing that teleports yeah. us around the, the world <laughs> the the universe there's a certain sitcom reality we have to just accept sure. uh, but yeah within an episode itself you set up this concept how much can you explore it yeah it's limited isn't it and you've got to have a bit of fun and excitement and adventure in the whole thing as well so it's a tough act and i think it you know red dwarf does it very well but that is why perhaps you don't get very many sci-fi sitcoms because on in a sitcom you want to you want to be dealing with like oh no we have to wallpaper the house and the vicar's coming around to tea you know that's the kind (laughs) of plot concept To, to contrast this with another episode in the last day that's the one where we have Gordon Kennedy, the other absolutely alumnus, mm-hmm. who is, has come to delete Crichton. That deals with the concept of Silicon Heaven, the afterlife. The idea of doing the right thing in this life for reward in the next. And of course, you know, Silicon Heaven, what a ridiculous concept. But that's then used against the Gordon Kennedy character and he melts down because he can't cope with the idea that there might not be a Silicon Heaven. Mm. And I wanted to see that in The Inquisitor. I wanted to see The Inquisitor bested by this, by having to confront the idea of free will and the fact that what he'd been doing was was unfair mm-hmm. and that he was not using his existence in the right way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I understand that, yeah. But we didn't. We just chopped his arm off and shot him. Well, there's a bit of an old backfiring time gauntlet trick. It's, it's <laughs> quite a clever ending. Yeah. Uh, we'll come to that in a second. Oh, spoilers. <laughs> so, yeah, what we get next is... Um, Crichton and Lister have sort of been deleted from time, but still exist in a in a, a mishap, uh, and so they are running around the ship. But they've been replaced by another version of Lister and Crichton. So first mm-hmm. of all, they're running around and they get they meet up with Rimmer and Cat, who don't recognise them, of course. Yeah, and there's a little bit of fun there with them describing Rimmer. Then the other Lister and Crichton turn up. 
Yeah, and I think this is quite timely as we are recording this. Uh, the guy who plays the alternative lister just recently died last week, didn't he? Jake Abraham. Yeah, Jake Abraham just died prostate cancer. Yeah, I was just as well. I think it was literally the day I watched this episode that happened, so it was very timely in that sense. Uh, Jake Abraham was he was a friend of Craig Charles. I don't know quite. Mm-hmm. They just knew each other from the circuit, I guess. They're both from Liverpool, so I guess they were. Yeah. You know, they knew. It. So I think he, I think Craig Charles kind of recommended him as a play an alternate version of himself. Yeah. And uh, you know, he's just an actor you know working the last 30 years but not much sitcom he is in an episode of the British Empire just uh, before this Mm -hmm. actually but uh, again they just do so little with it Um, we establish this new Lister and new Crichton Crichton literally has one line he's basically an extra I looked him up actually the, the guy who plays in Tim Yates his only other credit is the previous episode of this series in which he is an extra. He's basically okay. in a hologram on that. On the hologram. I thought maybe he was on crew or something, but he's got no other credits in terms of crew. I think he was brought in as an extra for the week before. Just like, oh, we just need to want someone to stand here. Uh, you don't need mm-hmm. to say anything. That's an extra's gig. And they've gone, do you know what? We need someone for next week. Are you got You're time about the to... same height as Robert Llewellyn. <laughs> we need to put a big latex head on you. We need to make a mold of your face. Have you got a couple of hours for us to do that? And then they're doing yeah. like, because they would need someone to come in the week before to make the mask for him. So I think they may have just been, look, you're hanging around. Can you come back in next week? Uh, who knows? But he gets, he gets to say one line, which is all right, I suppose. But that, it's a frustrating because we get one conversation between the two listers and then we, we yeah, it feels yeah, like that could be developed thrown a lot away. more. Yeah, without jumping too far, the, Lister and, the alternative Lister and Crichton get blown away pretty quickly mm. by the Inquisitor. Yeah, it, like you've got Jake Abraham in, you know, use him. And not just for comedy purposes, but to explore that idea of like, okay, you're mm. a different version of me. And let's note, this different version of Lister has ended up in the exact same position. He's adrift in space. Yes. The Red Dwarf crew are dead. Rimmer is still a hologram. All that stuff that he... So how has, has he used a... his life better? Yeah. Or, or or is there no difference because we have no free will? Well, is that is that the point? Who knows? Because he just blew him away. To some extent in this episode, we do get the sort of the, the Crichton and Lister show. Um, we get a lot mm. of them, just the two of them together. Yeah. The Cat and Rimmer just pop up here and there. These are alternative Cat and Rimmer, in a sense. They have they have lived in a different, different universe, life. and they yeah. seem to get on with each other a lot more than we would <laughs> expect yeah. of our Cat and Rimmer. But they're in a desperate situation. They're banding together. Although Cat does call Rimmer Transam Wheel Arch Nostrils, yeah. which is a bit much. <laughs> That's no smaghead, is it? It's not catchy, that. There's a lot of that sort of stuff where they describe it. Crichton's head particularly gets a lot of... Yes, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like a, shaped like a novelty condom, <laughs> stuff like yeah. that. I take the, there's another line in here which I thought was noteworthy for, for our purposes, which is um, Rimmer says that Crichton and Lister are chained together like Sidney Poitier and Tony Curtis. Oh, yeah. Now, that's a reference to the Defiant Ones, isn't it? Yeah. You know what? It's interesting. In this period, they start to put in American references because they were trying to sell the show to America. Uh, and uh, there's a particularly bad one. I think it must be Series 3. Oh, it might be Time Slides, actually. They talk about what they could do if they could go back in time. And Lister sort of flippantly says... What we could go back in time and persuade Dustin Hoffman not to make Ishtar. Now, nobody gets that now, right? Ishtar was a film made in the late 80s, which was a big flop. It was just a famous flop. It was a famous flop. Yeah, it's famous for being a flop. In 1989, that was a great reference. When I watched it in like 1996 or whatever, when I was 12, no idea what that meant. (laughs) Probably didn't even know who Dustin Hoffman was. (laughs) But certainly now, who in the hell remembers Ishtar? Well, who the hell remembers the Defiant Ones? (laughs) And then we have another bit, another kind of, just to sort of repeat what we were saying earlier, they're sat there 
and Crichton is going about on about her like he knows he's going to die, but it doesn't matter if he manages to save Lister's life. And Lister kind of holds the whole thing like, well, I made you break your programming, and that means you are culpable for your actions. If you were just a programmed mechanoid, you would not be judged. But because you have made choices, you will. And then, like, he feels guilty for that. And, and there's, again, it's just a little bit of an exploration of that philosophical idea. Yeah. Again, without really reaching any great conclusions. But in a sitcom, I think that's more than you, what you usually get, isn't it? So. Yeah, you don't get that in George and Mildred. <laughs> oh, and there's another element here as well. After the some of the other people are killed, Crichton and Lister have to get through a security door, but because they are not recognised in this world, they can't get through uh, with their palm print. And Lister does something to get them through, and <laughs> and Crichton again, who is often unemotional, is absolutely sickened <laughs> by Lister's actions. So he has emotions sometimes. It's a it's a nice bit of uh, it's a nice bit of comic work from the. Um, well in this. Logically, sir, there is only one way you could possibly have opened that door. I feel quite nauseous. Where is it? Where's what? Oh, sir, you've got it in your jacket! I got it out of a hole, didn't I? Oh, sir, you are sick! You are a sick, sick person! <laughs> yeah, because the idea being that Lister has procured the palm print of another crew member by finding yeah. his detached hand. Yeah, yeah. The, the problem, my problem with this is the whole palm print scanner thing, we have never seen before or since on any part <laughs> no, of no, a door never for been them to get through a door. <laughs> never been and Holly, you know, you presume Holly would just sort of let, <laughs> let everyone through. Maybe usually they don't need to because Holly's just aware of where everyone is, but they are intruders, so they need to get through, I guess. Maybe that's, that's the explanation. But yeah, I like that. So now we have this sort of final confrontation. Lister's got the, Lister's got the Inquisitor's gauntlet from the past. And we get this. We set up this sort of Wild West type shootout. It's funny you mentioned Gunmen of the Apocalypse earlier. Here we have them at each end of a corridor, and there is a sort of high noon element to it, isn't there? Yeah. But instead of uh, instead of six shooters, they're shooting this sort of timey wimey nonsenseness at each other. Unfortunately, instead of just killing him like he has done with everyone else, the Inquisitor decides to youth Lister just to play play with him a bit. (laughs) Let the games begin. Yeah, so he youths him and then turns him into an old man. So, fortunately, he doesn't just kill him. It gives them time uh, for Crichton to distract him. They manage to get control of the Inquisitor, and, and there the plan comes into action. They could just kill him, but Lister has a deeper plan that we don't know about, that he's going to erase uh, his actions to bring everyone back to life. Yes. And so the conclusion is, essentially, Lister sets up a situation where the Inquisitor's life is at risk, and therefore, by saving his life, he is immune to erasure, because if he deletes Lister from time, he won't be there to save his life. Yeah. But then, of course, if he wouldn't be there to put it in danger in the first place. So, that's all... It's all a bit uh, complex, but uh, the Inquisitor thinks he has bested him. But yeah, Lister has used his brain for the first time in his life. So actually what he's done is rigged the gauntlet to uh, delete the Inquisitor from time, thereby removing all his work. So that's very nice, but why didn't he just erase him? If you got the gauntlet, why didn't why did he have to get him to do it to himself? Good question. Because Lister doesn't want to kill. Because because Lister is not a person who would kill. Yeah, maybe he's just a fat little human with no balls. So he sets up a contrived situation in which the person is defrauded into killing himself. Yeah, and so he's morally fine. <laughs> <laughs> Right, well, look, that's our episode. And everything is reset. We're mm. all good to go again for the next episode. Yeah. Start again for Terraform. It's nice. It's good. It's nice little bit of sitcom plotting. Good that sitcom is. resetting. It's good right in there. So before we finish our conversation about Peak Red Dwarf, 
Now might be a good time to talk about what other things our main cast did. Yeah, I, I've had a look at what basically what else everyone did in the 90s. I just thought I'd sort of co- com- yeah. <laughs> compare to like this time period. Oh, this is sort of early 90s. The biggest one of the lot is Chris Barry. Mm-hmm. Because in 1991, which was sort of right between series three and four, I think, or four and five, uh, he started the British Empire. And I think when he you did. look at Chris Barry's career, the two big shows, that long-running shows were... The British Empire and Red Dwarf. Mm. The British Empire ran for several years, written by the people who brought us Chance in a Million. <laughs> oh, yeah, of course, yeah. This was their biggest success as well, uh, in terms of sitcom, anyway. I'm sh- I think we'll probably talk about the British Empire one day. I'm not going to get into I'm sure the we detail will. of it. I'm sure we will. I remember when the British Empire came on. Oh, great, it's Rimmer. I like him. Mm. And I really didn't like it. I didn't like it. Yeah. Basically, I didn't like it because he wasn't Rimmer. I suppose that's what it was. Yeah. But having... i just gone back and watched the first episode of uh, of the British Empire this week. Yeah. Still don't like it. Yeah, yeah. The central character is really, really unlikable. Yeah. You can get away with that, but you've really got to... You need to have some sympathy for them. Mm. I just got... I just have no sympathy of Britus. No, I know what you mean. It ran for a long time, didn't it, the British Empire? Several years, yeah, throughout the 90s. Mm. And what he did immediately after the British Empire had finished was, I don't know if you remember this, a sitcom called A Prince Among Men. Well, I, I didn't remember it, but you have also sent me the first episode of this, which I yeah. watched. This did two series. I think it's called Gary Prince. He's supposed to be a... Gary Prince, former yeah. England captain. And He's if you footballer. think my Scouse accent is bad... Then let me tell you that Chris Barry, man of a thousand voice, <laughs> is not so great either. How many times have I told you about putting things in front of these photos? You've covered up Princess Anne. That is practically treason. Sorry. Very proud of this photo, Princess Anne being introduced to me. You've been introduced to Princess Anne, surely? Hey, she said she was very pleased to meet me. I think she knows what she's talking about. <laughs> I, I remember this at the time, I think. Uh, I've definitely seen bits of it since. Um, and it's not great. It's, it's not, it's just, it's just a bit meh, which is like, that's not enough. And, and yeah, two series it struggled through. And Well, the other, it's the same problem as Britus. He's basically an egotistical prick, this footballer. He's not a nice bloke. Can, do you think Chris Barry can do a nice person, a, a sympathetic character? Is that, is that in his, not in his range? I do feel like maybe he's been a little bit uh, stereotyped in that sense. Maybe. But I guess he's maybe. just, he's, He's good at playing... He's got a very pompous sort of face. Mm. I think that helps. Mm. I'll tell you what I did like about Prince Among Men. What he was doing was the 1997 stereotype of a, of a flash-rich footballer. And it was amazing to me how different that stereotype is to what it would be now. Yeah. Like, he was opening a supermarket in Widnes. You can't imagine Marcus Rashford doing that. Well, this was early day. Well, just a few years into Premier League. Suddenly yeah, they yeah. were making much more money than you know, their father did. Do you know what I mean? They were still working class kids who had done well, but they weren't multi, multi, multi millionaires. Uh, One other thing, Chris Barry in the 90s, he he did try and break America uh, slightly. He played the butler in the the, He was in the Angelina Jolie... What, go on, Tomb tell Raider. me what the character's called. Tomb Raider, yes, thank Lara you. Croft, I remember yeah. him in that. They've made some new Tomb Raider films recently, haven't yeah, they? Yeah, yeah. yeah. But, but I'm talking classic Jolie Tomb Raider. Yeah, which is a, it's a, it's a, it is a classic 90s action flick. Is it early 2000s? It might be. I can't mm-hmm. remember. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, I remember Chris Barry being that. Yeah, and he's playing the stuck-up English butler, like a sort of Denham Elliott, mm-hmm. John Gielgud type. You know, it's a classic... It's a it classic is a, it's thing. It's a good trope, isn't it? And uh, it didn't lead to anything else, uh, sadly, for him in America. But, um, you know, fair enough. Uh, Craig Charles? Oh, well, look, I'm going to preempt here because, <laughs> again, I've, I've watched this one episode you sent me of Captain Butler. <laughs> Tell us about Captain Butler. 
Captain Butler is basically Craig Charles' only other sitcom thing. It, it was the one attempt to kind of throw him in as a lead in a sitcom after his success with Red Dwarf. It's about a pirate captain who's actually a bit of a coward and um, he's got mm. he's got a ragtag crew and they have sort of wacky adventures on the high seas. I've never I don't think I've ever seen anything so cheap. It is famously just awful. It's a it's a bad show in all the sets, re- re- regards. The costumes. The, it looks oh, they're like... on a ship. The the sky, the blue sky, is a, a blue painted wall three feet behind yeah. them, and it's so apparent. Yeah. It's it's yeah, it's awful. Sanjeev Bhaskar's in it. Yeah, and he was riding high. This is sort of goodness gracious me time. When he was oh, was, was he? Was he? It wasn't I before so, he was yeah. famous. It was okay. Ninety seven. I don't know. Goodness gracious me is about that time. Ninety seven. Yeah. And the episode you sent me, we had uh, a guest star portraying Lord Nelson was Robert Llewellyn. Yeah, that's why I sent that one to you specifically, because Robert Llewellyn was in it as well. Again, not really <laughs> breaking <laughs> breaking the mould with uh, with this performance. <laughs> I say, we get you back to England, kit you up with a completely fresh team, and set you off to get back at the French. Don't you think it's a bit soon after the last battle, sir? Oh, nonsense, man. When the horse bucks you off, you've got to get straight back on. Now, I've got a major sea battle lined up for Thursday week. What say we put you in the frame for that? Uh, I think I'm booked up next Thursday, sir. <laughs> I think I've got a luncheon appointment. Oh boy, it was it was pretty bad. So so yeah, we what we, we we've talked there about British Empire, Prince Among Men, and Captain Butler. And mm. I didn't enjoy any of them. And you yeah. know, I I would have liked at least one out of three hits there. And that's it, frankly. You know, we could argue Danny John Jules, he was in Maid Marion and a Merry Men. You could argue mm-hmm. that's a sitcom for kids. I think that is a sitcom. I think we've talked about this before. Rent a Ghost, yeah. Maid Marion. I think they qualify as sitcoms. Yeah. But even in that, he's a tangential character. It's not like yeah. he's the lead or anything, you know. But yeah, these guys didn't go on to like have very productive careers outside of Red Dwarf. And I think that's a big part to its longevity. Yeah, still going. Not just them, but the writers as well. You mentioned the stranger as earlier. That was something that, yeah. that that was something that Rob Grant went on to do afterwards. So tell us more about strangers. Mm. I sort of remember that. Was it on Sky? Yes, yes. At, yeah. at, at the end of series six, Rob Grant leaves Red Dwarf, and mm-hmm. you know has never written for it again uh, in the yeah. official capacity. Uh, so I think this is a good opportunity for us to catch up with Rob Grant and do a little kind of bio yeah, on okay. him. We've talked about how him and Doug Naylor kind of got together in the first place, but. Red Dwarf is basically the only sitcom they wrote. They did, they were sketch guys and they did the spitting image and all that. Then they got Red Dwarf off the ground. And then one other thing that they did at this time period was a show called The Ten Percenters, mm-hmm. which is a set in a theatrical agency. And they, yeah. they did it as a, a pilot for ITV's equivalent of Comedy Playhouse, you know, a, a sitcom uh, pilot season. Off the back of that, they got two series out of it. Oh, that's interesting. So, so you sent me the pilot, and yeah. because it was entitled Pilot, I assumed yeah. that meant it had gone nowhere. <laughs> well, the reason I sent you that one is because between pilot and series, Rob Grant left uh, the ah. company. Well, like I say, he never left the company. They're always kind of in, involved with Grant Naylor Productions, but they stopped writing together. Uh, so the the series itself was written by Doug Naylor and a sort of some other writers as well. Mm-hmm. But that what I sent you that pilot is basically the only other sitcom thing they wrote together. You said that that's the last thing they wrote together. Yeah, but also the only other sitcom thing they did, you know, yeah. in terms of anything that actually got made. This was it in 93, 4, something like that. They decided to part ways. I don't know if there was any great kind of rift between them. I haven't heard either of them really talk about it directly, but it seems mm. like, you know, Rob Grant had had enough. He wanted to move on and do some other things. And I think they, they'd just been working in each other's pockets for so long that, you know, perhaps whatever tensions were there were 
getting to them and they just yeah. decided to get away while they could and you know all that like I said in, in the early 2000s they released the DVDs got loads of extras cast commentaries interviews with all the creatives and etc etc and Rob Grant's not involved in any of that and I think that's quite telling but he also now Rob Grant uh, more recently and during the lockdown particularly uh, he started doing a whole YouTube run of you know talking about Red Dwarf with other people mm-hmm. like Ed By and Paul Jackson and all this sort of stuff okay. they did loads of videos Doug Naylor is not involved in any of that. And I know as well, this is quite recent news, in 2020, Doug Naylor left Grant Naylor Productions and they resolved it and he came back in 2023. And that was some whole big legal dispute thing. They've resolved it now. And then not long after that is when all the Red Dwarf stuff started coming back online. And then they, they're all uh, like one play. They're all on iPlayer and stuff again now. So it was in stasis for three years. But this is all shenanigans and legal stuff. I don't know in terms of like their personal relationship, how well they got on during all that period or any of the last 20 years. I'm not sure. They don't, I've never seen them together. I've never seen them sort of talking about it. So I think they may have fallen out to some extent. And and we'll deal with this later as well when we come back to Red Dwarf. Doug Naylor yeah, continued we'll writing it. And, yeah. But, yeah. but yeah. Rob Grant, he left the show. Um, he did do some other things, though. So let's have a look at what other sitcom stuff he did. Well, the 10 percenters, just before we move off, mm-hmm. I quite liked that. It was all right. It was fine, wasn't it? It, it didn't yeah. blow me away, but it was all right. It was better than the other three that we've just talked about. Yeah. Anyway, sorry, go on. Rob Grant. Well, one thing he did was called Dark Ages. Nope. <laughs> this was made in 1999. And it was set in 999. Oh, clever. The uh, the concept is that it's people in 999 uh, coming up to the Millennium and they're freaking out about it. And there's sort of things about that. Well, that's, that was a real thing. Exactly, which at the time was a real Millennium bug kind of thing that they were yeah. playing on. And also, I, as from what I understand, it wasn't his original concept, but they brought him in to write it or something, which is, um, you know, and it's set in, it's set in the dark ages. The stars are Phil Jupitus, Alistair McGowan, and Paulie McLean, who was hot off yeah. Father Ted at the time. And I haven't been able to find, uh, much of it. I haven't been able to see. It. I've yeah. seen a couple of little clips, but the general feeling from everyone who's seen it is it's absolutely shite. <laughs> it's, it's total hogwash. Phil Jupiter's can't act. Uh, <laughs> and that is, seems to be the generally accepted opinion, and certainly he was it was not. A, quite a big star then, wasn't he? 1999. But yeah, he's a big stand-up panel star. Shows and, doesn't necessarily yeah. translate, does it? And then just the following year, 2000, The Strangerers. Yes. And this was a Sky One original production, and mm. we talked about it briefly when we looked at Time Gentleman Please, because it was yeah. the same, it was under the same stable. So as is that, that Jack Doherty and, and uh, Mark Williams, who was Peterson. Peterson yes. in Early Red Dwarf. Yes, and it's made by Absolutely Productions. It is okay. it is produced by that company. Obviously, that's the Absolutely guys, right? Yeah, Jack Doherty and Mark Williams are aliens who come down to Earth and they're in human form, but that means they are, they're sort of still learning how to walk and talk and stuff like that, and they don't know oh, how to kind of... comedy. Think. That's my favourite kind of comedy. Yeah, yeah. And so there's all that kind of shenanigans. And then they're being chased by some, like, government agents played by Mark Heap and uh, Sarah Alexander. I've literally never seen a single moment of this sitcom but i know exactly <laughs> what mark heap is doing <laughs> so i've watched the first episode of this which is actually a double episode and to kind of set everything up uh-huh. and I've, I've read a bit about the what people think of it some people say it's a bit underrated and there's some nice moments in it i i i, well, I watched there were there were nice moments but like i watched a 40 odd minute episode and i felt like there's eight minutes of material here 
It felt really dragged out. Uh, it felt like a sketch idea. Oh, what if this aliens are in Earth and you could do a series of sketches about that? And they're, oh, today they're eating for the first time. That'll be funny, won't it? Oh, look, he's trying to uh, flirt with a lady. That'll be funny. But mm. it's not being tied together very well. And like I say, I haven't watched the whole series, so there may, maybe it ties in a bit. But it feels slow. It does feel slow. Yeah. Maybe they could have got uh, like an hour and a half film out of it, the whole series. I don't know. But I'm not surprised it didn't go anywhere, put it that way. The performances by Williams and Doherty are, you know, nothing special. Rob Grant, he, he continues to, he, he writes novels, actually. Here's an interesting thing. In the 90s, after they split, Rob Grant and Doug Naylor both wrote a Red Dwarf novel each. Oh, they collaborate. They collaborated on the first two, and then they wrote one each, because they'd kind of, they'd gone their separate ways. And I suspect, I don't know this for sure, but I suspect they were under contract for two more novels, and so they went, let's split it and do one Steve each, rather than having to work together on two. <laughs> I suspect, I don't know. So how does that work with the continuity and the... You know, what's the two separate novels are continuing from the previous novels, but they are separately written. So I'm not sure. I I haven't written. I haven't read them yet, although I'm quite tempted to. I think I'm going to read the books. Well, we always do bonus podcasts about spin-off movies. Maybe we should uh, turn our hand to reading a couple of the novels and do a bonus podcast on that. I'd be up for that. Yeah, let's do one at a time and sort of see how we go. Yeah, <laughs> see how we feel. Yeah, <laughs> but let's try it. Yeah, let's try it. Uh, and just just one last thing of Rob Grant. Uh, you know, his most recent thing. He's he's recently teamed up with Andrew Marshall. As of 2.4 Children. Am I right? Is it Alexis Sell's stuff he wrote? Yeah, yeah, and yeah. Uh, Hot Metal yeah. and, and all that. Yeah, yeah. So Andrew Marshall and and Rob Grant quite recently have been writing for radio, sci-fi comedy on the radio, called The Quanderhorn Experimentations. Oh, God. <laughs> that, I mean, I know nothing about it other than its name, and it sounds very sixth form. <laughs> well, it's a Quatermass thing, you know. I listened to the first episode of that to see if I could... And I just could not... I couldn't, couldn't do it. I, there's something about radio... Yeah comedy particularly like, like it has to be done so well or i just cannot bear it and it's yeah i find radio drama difficult to yeah. you know radio fiction i find it yeah. very difficult to get into engage with i agree but it's very cheap so you can throw things mm. together quite easily i think sketch sketch can work on radio quite well but yeah so what well, i think we've probably finished with our peak red dwarf so we've mm. talked about series three to six well we've talked about series one to six now mm. what will come next what will we do next so what I want to do, I want to split the rest of Red Dwarf into another another two episodes. So it'll be four altogether. But I think Red Dwarf justifies it. Uh, so what comes mm. next? I don't know you're not aware of this because you stopped watching in the mid nineties. Yeah, this is kind of where started I started drinking. I parted company. With <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So. There's a few year gap here and then they come back with series seven without Rob Grant. And that one definitely feels like the series that is a bit, uh, they're still going. It's okay, but it's not quite as good. Then the next series is a real kind of reboot. They try and, and this is, I do respect they've done this in the past, a big swing, try and do yep. something completely different. Change it all. For up. me, it doesn't, it doesn't work, but they go for it. I'm, I, I respect that. And that was the end of it, really, that it stopped. And then 10 years go by, and for whatever reason, which we'll get into later, they decide to have a, a go at a comeback. And they do a little sort mm-hmm. of special, mini-series kind of special thing where they brought it back. And that ultimately sort of relaunched the new birth. So what I want to do is the next episode is tackle that period. And then in a fourth episode, we can tackle the kind of, okay, they brought it back 30 years later. What's going on? And, and the, they, they've done a few series now. And so we can kind of look at that as a separate entity. But I want to go through the kind of what would be the awkward years. I guess <laughs> the sort of the death 
<laughs> the slow, painful death and rebirth of Red Dwarf in the next chapter. Okay. All right. Well, that sounds interesting. As you said, I, I kind of, this is this the end of series six, I think is probably the last Red Dwarf I saw. And so I, I'm genuinely looking forward to seeing what happened. What happened next? Yeah. Yeah. It'd be interesting. It's going to be good. So at this point, usually we say, well, what are your conclusions? What did you think? So mm. even though we're much more familiar with this material than some of the other things we've looked at, what are your conclusions about Peak Red Dwarf? I, I, I love it, honestly. I This is Peak Red Dwarf for me. I do appreciate the first two series and all that. But this stuff, series four and five particularly, because I must have watched them so many times when I was a kid. And so yeah, there's a, there is a nostalgia element there, but there's a reason I watch them over and over again. It, I loved them. This little period of Red Dwarf would be up there for me in my kind of favourite sitcoms ever list. Mm -hmm. I don't know how much the rest of Red Dwarf and what's come after has sort of tainted that slightly as an overall picture. I don't know. But I I love Red Dwarf. I think it's really, really well written. A surprising, from from a writing point of view, that I don't seem to like anything else the writers have ever done. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You know, what really gets me is the sci-fi concepts as well. There's some really good yeah. sci-fi stuff here. You could take a Red Dwarf plot idea and, and make a feature-length film out of it. Absolutely no problem. Definitely. You could get 12 feature films out of this with different characters. You know, you mean you don't have to make them Red Dwarf films. But take that concept, a really good sci-fi concept, and you could do so much with it. Right, I think that we should wrap up. So I've really enjoyed this. I hope our listeners have enjoyed it. I hope if we've got any uh, Red Dwarf nerds listening who don't usually listen to our podcast, I hope we've not uh, offended you with our blundering around your beloved Red Dwarf. I can assure you that it's meant with affection. And you should listen to our episode on Please Sir. You might learn something. <laughs> so we will see you all next time. What are we doing next, Alan? Ooh, we go. We, we always like to end our series on something a little bit more uh, recent, which for mm-hmm. us is sort of anything post twentieth century. Uh, but we're going very recent, at least within ten years. <laughs> oh, Fleabag. Fleabag. Oh, I'm looking forward to that one. Yeah, yeah. No, I really enjoyed Fleabag at the time, and uh, we started watching it again. I'm enjoying watching it again. Um, yeah, I'm looking forward to talking well, about it. Well, I've never watched it at the time. It's new to me, so uh, <laughs> I'm <yeah>. excited. <laughs> we will see our listeners next week for Fleabag. You can find us on social media. We're still on Twitter, and we're also on Instagram at BritcomPod. Mm. And you can find us on Facebook, too. If you just put British Sitcom History Podcast into the search bar, you'll find our page. If you would like to watch these podcasts with video accompaniments or our other video offerings on the YouTube, go onto YouTube and search for British Sitcom History. You will find us there as well. Thanks, everyone. We'll see you soon. Thank you very much. Bye. Bye.